today in Psalm 26, you'll see, this is what I've entitled the message today, David is going to give us an example of what it means to be the king's man, meaning he is going to commend to us a way of living, things that we ought to do, things that we ought not to do, if we adhere to our king, if we follow our king. So that's why I begin this way. He is recounting the things that he does, the things that he does not do. He's saying, this is the way to live if you love the king. Now before we get into this, I just want to communicate two things. First of all, I want this psalm to be an encouragement to us this morning. I want this to be encouragement. It's Father's Day. We've got a lot of fathers in the room I want you, dads, to be the king's man. I want you to know the Lord. I want you to love the Lord. I want you to serve him and live in light of what God has told us. And this isn't just for dads. Don't let the pronouns fool you. This is for everyone. God has given us his word, all of us, for our instruction, for our help, for our growth, that we would know God and know ourselves and be able to live in the way that he has commanded us to live. So I want to encourage us with this instruction today. Now, the other thing is just a word of caution as we begin this morning. It is easy sometimes for people like me, and I think most of us probably here in this room, people who affirm and believe in the sovereignty of God over salvation, we believe that just like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tells us, that we are saved by grace through faith. Yes and amen to those things. We just sang about it this morning very clearly, right? It can be easy, though, at times for us to take the principles of conversion, and what I mean is the way that a person gets saved, we can take that sometimes and translate that on to the way that we live now once we've been saved. And here's what I mean. We affirm that there was nothing that we did, there was nothing we contributed for God to extend his grace to us. And now that we have been saved, if you belong to Christ, you are a Christian, you are redeemed, We need to be careful that we don't take that same way of thinking like hands-off approach and apply it to our sanctification, our growth, our holiness. I'm so glad that the exhortation this morning talked about holiness. My point is that we ought not to be afraid when the Bible tells us to do something. We shouldn't say, oh, wait a minute, I'm saved by grace apart from any works of the law. That's, that's works-based theology. No, it's not. We understand that we were saved by the grace of God, but we were saved so that we can actually obey Him. The grace that saved us now empowers us to be obedient. Think of all the instruction the commands, the examples, the exhortations in Scripture. Why are they there? So that we would do it. So we would do it. So don't be scared off by parts of scripture that say, do this, walk this way, live this way, this is pleasing to God. Don't look at that and say, oh, whoa, whoa, that's works. Of course it's works. That's what we're called to. But not as a way of earning favor with God. So get the order right in our minds. That's my job, is to help us get the order right. The grace that saved us, free grace, now enables us to be able to follow in obedience to God. Okay, So keep that in mind 
as we look today at Psalm 26, at what it means to be the king's man. And so let's turn there together. Psalm 26, we'll read this and we'll begin for this morning. A Psalm of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence, and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud, and telling all of your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. Let's pray as we begin. Father in heaven, we need your help now. There are instructions, there are examples that we need to follow. You've given us the way of life, Lord. It's, it's not a burden to obey your commands. It is the very means by which you preserve your people. And so this morning, as we look at this psalm, as we see what it means to walk in your ways, what it means to reject wickedness and to love righteousness, Lord, help us. Help us to see your word clearly. Help us to understand that it is right and it is good for us to obey and to walk in obedience to you. And Father, we do thank you for saving us apart from any of our own work. It humbles us and it helps us to understand our place before you, but for each one of us in this room, God, who has been saved by your grace, I pray now that we would look at this text as an opportunity to know how to walk closely with you. And for those in this room, Father, who are not yet saved, would your grace extend to them and by your spirit, Lord, convict them of sin, help them to see that this is the way and that they ought to walk in it. And so help them, Lord, to hear your voice, to confess their sin, to repent and trust in Jesus. There's a lot of things that we are asking for today, but you can do it all. And so I pray that you would come and by your word and by your spirit, God, accomplish all of your purposes among us today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Psalm 26 can be taken in a few different sections, so I just want to point out some different reference points that you can kind of follow along with as we move through. The psalm opens with the first request from David in verses 1 and 2. There's another request in 9 through 11, and then between those two, we see that David rejects the way of the wicked and instead focuses on worship, and then we're going to close the psalm by looking at stability as the outcome of this way of living. So we're going to end on a real positive kind of mm, going forward note. 
So we have that to look forward to. So let's start at the beginning in verse 1. And we actually see two requests wrapped up here in verse 1. One for vindication. We'll talk about what that means. And the other for proving or for refining. So David's request for vindication comes, at least in part, as a result of his own understanding that he is the Lord's anointed king. He is the one that God has placed on the throne of Israel, and he has made a big deal out of the fact that he trusts in God. If you take an even cursory reading of the Psalms, you will see very clearly that God is David's strength. That David calls upon God. He makes a public demonstration of the fact that he trusts in God. God's the one who cares for him. God's the one who provides for him. Therefore, as this representative king, it's not only David's reputation that's at stake here in the accusation. It is God's reputation. At least in the understanding of the people that are watching this, right? So this request for vindication is not just about David having his feelings preserved. It's about God. It's about how God is understood. It's about how God is viewed. Now, to be vindicated means to be cleared of guilt or suspicion. Kids, you know what this word is. I know it's four syllables, and that's a lot for 8.30 in the morning. But the word vindication means to be cleared of guilt. So let's say you're playing with your siblings, your friends, and someone accuses you of doing something. You took something or you broke something. When you run to your parent or to your teacher or whoever it is and you say, hey, they're, they're saying that I did this, but I really didn't do it. What you are asking for is vindication. Okay? So I know it's a big word, but you know what that means. You want to be cleared of the wrong assumption, the wrong accusation that has been made against you. So even though here in Psalm 26, we do not know the exact situation that prompts David to ask for this kind of vindication. Sometimes we do. Sometimes it's written right in the superscript or we can cross-reference to other areas. We don't know the exact situation here, but David is asking God to vindicate him, to remove the, the, the implication that he is guilty or that he is being suspi uh, suspicioned of. <laughs> I can talk, trust me, I really can. Okay, so David desires that God clear his name to remove suspicion, to remove guilt, so that God's reputation is upheld. You tracking with me so far? So this request for vindication does not only have to do with David, it has to do with the reputation of God among the people. Now, he tells us why he can ask for this. This is a big request, right? For David to come to God and say, hey, look, you got to clear me. Why can he do that? What is allowing David to have that kind of boldness to come to God? Look at the rest of verse 1. For I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted the Lord without wavering. Now, two times in this psalm, David uses the words, my integrity, and they're used both times as kind of a grounds for why God should do something. Now, this is referencing his way of living. When David says, I've walked in my integrity, he is referring to his lifestyle, his conduct, his decision-making, his convictions. Okay, last week, Psalm 25, we saw that it is the Lord who instructs sinners in his ways. He leads his people in the paths of truth. You remember that from last Sunday? So David is the recipient 
of this leading, of this teaching of the Lord. And so it is not arrogant for him to say, Lord, do this because I have walked in my integrity. He's not bragging. He's not drawing attention to the fact that he's done a really good job so now God is obligated to do this for him. Rather, he is drawing attention to the faithfulness of God. And I would just cite Psalm 25:10 from last Sunday, which says, All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. It should not be shocking when God acts according to his own character, when he acts according to his covenant-keeping faithfulness. That shouldn't shock anybody. And that's what David is getting at here. He's not saying, hey, I did a good job. I should be rewarded. Clear my name. He is saying, God, I have listened to your instruction. I have walked in obedience. Now be faithful to your covenant. That's what's happening here in this thing. It should not be shocking when God acts according to his character. Now, verse 1 says that David has trusted the Lord without wavering. What does wavering mean? Wavering, you kind of get the sense of instability, not a clear direction, it's all over the place. And that's a good translation. But a literal translation of this would be, I have trusted in the Lord, therefore I will not buckle. Isn't that a great word? Buckle. I love it. You know what that means? It means fall apart. Right? To buckle under the pressure, we all know what that's like. You got a deadline, you got a project, you don't want to buckle under the pressure. So David says, I have trusted in the Lord without buckling. And I think that's a really great translation. He won't cave. He won't give in. He trusts God, period. Now, how many times do we in the church as believers, how many times do we talk about trusting God? Do we teach about trusting God? We affirm with our mouth that we trust God and yet we walk out of here and we get into our week and we functionally deny that truth by trusting in everything but God. Or maybe it's just me. It is so easy to say something with your mouth. It is so easy to say, well, yeah, of course I trust God. He's God. Really. I, I did a... I did a bad thing on Friday. I'm going to share a negative example of this from my own life. Uh, I was working on something at home on Friday and uh, did not go according to plan, messed things up, had to redo things. And rather than trusting that God would work things out, rather than trusting that he would give me what I needed in that moment, I buckled and I turned to myself and I got frustrated and angry at what was going on. And I tell you that because that is not the right thing to do. Trusting God with big things can be easy sometimes. Yeah, we trust God to bring us all the way home to heaven. Yes and amen, and we do. But what about the little details? You buckle, like I did, under the pressure to turn to yourself rather than trusting in God. Don't do that. Don't don't be Jacob. Trust in God without buckling. And I'm calling all of us Dads, moms, kids, single people, everyone, trust in the Lord. All of this talk about God leading us in his ways and teaching us his truth and giving us direction, do you really trust him for that? 
Do you really trust that God knows better than you? I don't always do that, but I want to. And I just pray that we would learn as a church how to trust God more without buckling. And one of the ways I think that happens is by holding one another accountable. If you're like me, and again, <laughs> I'm sharing all my dirty laundry today, but you know that when you're alone, sometimes you do things that you wouldn't do if somebody else was there. That's not good. That's called inconsistency, right? And when we are around each other, when we spend time together, when we hold each other accountable, it can be a really helpful tool to say, whoa, hang on. We just talked about this in Bible study. We need to trust God. We just heard this on Sunday. We need to trust God. We just talked about this in community group. We got to trust God. So I'm calling us as a church to greater trust in God from the big cosmic realities right down to the moment-by-moment need for faithfulness, gentleness, humility, patience, all the fruits of the Spirit that Chris referenced. God is faithful and will give us those things. We need to trust Him. So David says, I have trusted you without buckling. Now, David has such a firm trust in God that he asks God in this second part of his request to prove him. Now, proving is the word for refining. It's the metal worker's term for looking and and assessing something very closely. It's an intense, close examination. Have you ever watched somebody work on jewelry and they put that neat little visor hat thing on and it's got like a mini telescope sticking out of one of the eyes? Okay, so they take the jewelry and they look at it through that thing and they are giving it a close examination. They are proving it to see where the defects are, the flaws are. That's what David is asking God to do here. He says, God, I've walked in integrity. I've trusted you without buckling. Prove me. Examine me. Look at me. Do you have that kind of confidence to say that to God? (laughs) I don't know if I do. This is intense. This God is, David is asking God to scrutinize his life. You see these three words he uses here? Prove, try, test. All of those have to do with a close examination of David's life. And I don't know if we're always willing to say, God, do whatever you have to do to remove what doesn't belong here. I want to walk in steadfastness. I want to be faithful to you. I want to trust you without wavering. So examine me and tell me what needs to change. That is a kind of confidence that we can and should have before God, but it is not always easy. That word prove means to create a situation that will prove out the outcome. In other words, you could read this and say that David is asking God to bring the furnace of affliction closer so that anything that doesn't belong in his life would be removed. Prove me, God. Try me. Test my heart. We sing about this kind of thing. We sing the song, Speak, O Lord, and the second verse says, Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. We sing that, and I hope we believe it, because that is what we need. Prove me, test me, try me. So those are the first requests that David makes. Next, let's go on verses 3 through 8. And just spoiler alert, this is my favorite section as I work through this this week. 
verses 3 through 8, David rejects wickedness, and rather he focuses on worship. And I want to draw attention to a contrast that we can see pretty clearly here in the text. In verses 3 to 5, it's dealing mostly with the negative associations here. Look at some of the words that he used. Men of falsehood, hypocrites, assembly of evildoers, the wicked. Okay, now contrast that with what we see in verses 6 through 8. Words like innocence, habitation of your house where your glory dwells, your wondrous deeds. I point this out in part to show the continuity of the Psalms. I want, to, I want you to know that this is not the first time that we've seen this, and we're going to see it as we move on here again, but this is almost exactly what we saw in Psalm 1, in the very opening of the book of Psalms. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. This is a very repeated theme through all of Scripture, and it shows up here again in chapter 26. The contrast is similar yet a little bit different. So in Psalm 1, you remember David articulates the way of the righteous, what that man does. He doesn't stand, sit, or hang out with the scoffers. Remember that section? Well, here in 26, he keeps walking. Right? Do you see that here in the verse? That he keeps walking in the faithfulness of God. He does not stop to sit with the men of falsehood. There seems to be a trajectory, a motion to this part of the text. Right? Uh, David's talking about what he does in worship, that he will not sit with men of falsehood nor consort with hypocrites, but that he's going to continue, verse 3, to walk in your faithfulness. So there's direction, there's movement here. And that is contrasted with the stopping and sitting with the men of wickedness. Now, to sit with the men of wickedness would be to take up company with them, to be closely associated with them, to be identified with them. Or to be, as Tolkien would say, a co-conspirator with them. The contrast in the test is stopping and sitting with the wicked or keeping moving in the faithfulness of God. Now here's why this is a big deal. Because we're going to see here in a moment the way this happens. But for David, his goal, his directive, his desire is to keep on the path that God has given to him. And I think this is worth pointing out because every one of us faces daily and sometimes momentary, moment-by-moment temptation to stray from what God has called us to do. Whatever it means for you to walk in obedience to the Word of God, given your specific context, there will always be temptation for you to be led off the path, to slow down, and you're just relax, my word, why are you so worked up? Just take a seat here for a moment. Don't do that. Keep moving. David says, I walk in your faithfulness, I will not stop. And be identified here. You see that twice? He talks about this, verse 4. I do not sit with men of falsehood. Verse 5. I will not sit with the wicked. So how does this happen? How is it that David comes to reject what is false in favor for what is true? It's easy to say, yep, I'm committed to righteousness. But how does that play itself out? Well, I think we get a really good example here. And here's how David does it. How does this happen practically? By using worship as a weapon. By using worship as a weapon. Look at verse 6. I wash my hands in innocence, 
and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. This is how David keeps walking and keeps moving. This is how he does not get tempted to go off the path and hang out with the wicked. He's describing his own experience in worship here. So let's just walk through a couple of these things. He starts with the ritual cleansing, the washing of his hands in innocence, which means he has a lack of guilt. He's been purified. He's been washed. He's coming clean to the Lord, which of course is symbolic of the forgiveness of his sins. We know this because we've seen it all over the scriptures. In order to be in the presence of God, sin has to be dealt with. Sin has to be dealt with. So David says, I wash my hands. He's cleansed before the Lord. Next, he introduces what I think is the most significant part of this whole section, and that is the corporate nature of his worship. He's not just talking about his individual quiet time in his prayer closet. He is talking about worship together with the people of God. So he goes around the altar of God. What does he do? Look at verse 7 proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. Now, who's he talking to? He's not crazy. He's not talking to himself. Who is he telling these wondrous deeds to? Who is he proclaiming thanksgiving to? Look at verse 12. The great assembly. Or if we use Psalm 1 language, the congregation of the righteous. This is corporate worship language that David is using to describe his tactics for staying on the path of righteousness. And notice some of the key elements to this worship. Verse 7, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud, that would be one, and telling of your wondrous deeds. Thanksgiving and remembrance, or the proclamation of what God has done. Now we include these elements here at Grace very intentionally, because I believe this. I believe that this is how worship should be structured. So we give thanks in our prayer, in our singing, in our exhortations for God's provision, for his care, for supplying the spirit, for his correction, for the way that he leads his people. We give him thanks for all of those things. And we recount his wonderful deeds by recounting the gospel. That is the greatest work that God has done by sending Jesus Christ, his son, into the world on behalf of sinners to satisfy God's wrath, to earn redemption for his people. That is a work that is worth remembering. And we do it visibly every Sunday at the table. Thanksgiving and remembrance. Thanksgiving and remembrance. Declaring out loud what God has done. This is the way to stay on the path. And we do this, I'm saying this is not haphazard. This is not accidental. Because we want to equip you to go out of these doors into the world and say, I trust you God, I have what I need to live a life of faithfulness to you. I want you to weaponize this time. To be able to view it as a weapon to fight against being led off the path. How are you going to go out this week? How are you going to go out and stay true to God? What do you have in your utility belt? Your toolbox, whatever analogy you want to use, purse. What do you have in there that's going to keep you on the path? 
Your own ability? That's nothing. Your own skill? That's not going to work. You need weaponized worship. You need to remember what God has done. You need a posture of thanksgiving before Almighty God that tells you God has done everything for you in sending His Son, in giving the gospel, in giving His Spirit. That is the way that David fights the temptation to stray off the path and sit with the wicked. And that is what I am calling us to do as well. Remember the faithfulness of God. Declare his deeds among the nations, the Psalms say. And that's what we are called to do in worship. Now, he ends this section in verse 8 by saying, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Now, the last few verses we've been able to sort of understand and apply relatively clearly, right? It's not a mystery what they're referring to. But what should you and I do with verse 8? What should we do with this language that David uses for loving the dwelling place of God? Well, the temple wasn't built yet in David's day, right? He didn't get to do that. God said, Solomon is going to do that. You've got too much blood on your hands. So he wasn't referring to the temple as the habitation of God, the dwelling place of God. He's likely referring to the tabernacle, a physical, literal place where God's presence dwelt. But this has less to do with the place itself and some of the components here that he uses of the glory and the presence of God. So I ask again, what should we do with verse 8? Do we have a, a physical place where we go to, to see the dwelling place of God and to experience his glory there? Let me suggest one application of this that might be helpful for us, okay? The point here is that David loves the place where the presence and the glory of God are. Now, those are inseparable, right? We, we shouldn't think about those as separate. Where God is, his glory is, because it's who he is, right? We know that. So, here's what I'm going to suggest. I'm going to take us to the New Testament just for a moment. You can turn to Ephesians 2, or you can just listen as I read this. But I want to show you what Paul says about the dwelling place of God now, and by now I mean post-resurrection, post-Pentecost, with the giving of the Spirit, okay? So what does he say about the dwelling place of God? And listen for building language, structural language, okay? And then we're going to put this back to Psalm 26. This is Ephesians 2, starting verse 19. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Okay, so if we stop right there, Paul's using all of this structure building language, right? Foundation, cornerstone, holy temple, household, whole structure. And we might think, oh, okay, well, that must be where God dwells. And you'd be right. But he continues, 2.22, in him, you also, now he's talking to the church, the people, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You catch that? Where does God dwell now? 
in us, in the church, by his spirit. That's what Paul is getting at. You, believers, those washed in the blood of Christ, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. And where God is, his glory is. So take this back to Psalm 26. I think we should have the same kind of affection. Look at what David says. 26.8. Let's read that again. Oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house, the place where your glory dwells. You see the affection, the emotion, the desire that David has for this dwelling place of God. Do we have the same kind of affection for the church, for the people of God? I think we should. I think we should have affection for one another. I think we should be excited to come together and engage in this kind of corporate worship that David is commending to us in Psalm 26. The presence of God is uniquely here when his people gather together. Because we are indwelt by his spirit, his presence is here, his glory is here, and I'm saying we should look forward to this time together as a church. This is the most significant time of your whole week. Did you know that? You may not feel that all the time. You may not think in those terms. But when we gather together as the people of God, under the banner of Jesus Christ, washed in the shed blood of the Messiah, Jesus, when we are empowered by His Spirit to worship Him in spirit and in truth, when we visibly demonstrate the atoning sacrifice of Christ, this is the habitation of God. This is where He is. Not in the same way as it was here, but now we have His Spirit who is building us all together to be His bride, His church, His people. And I'm just saying it is right and good for us to look forward to this time every week with eager expectation. It is my favorite day of the week. I don't expect that will be your favorite day of the week. That's okay. But shouldn't we have the same kind of love? Look at David's language here. For the dwelling place of God. And now Paul says, you. You are the dwelling place for God. This thing, I'm not going to talk about all the implications here. But think of the implication. If God is here, oh, and he is. If he is here by his spirit, and his glory is here, his power is here, all of him is here, what does that mean for us? I want you to think about that. Well, let's move on. David makes one more request here before we end the chapter. And this is very similar to what we saw in the first two verses. So 9 through 11, he again cites his integrity as a reason why God should act, why he should not be swept away or destroyed along with the wicked. And I'm just going to point out two things before we move on from here. First, look at verse 9 with me in the text. The assumption here is that those who follow the course of wickedness, those who live like verses 3 to 5 articulated for us, they will be destroyed. That's the assumption and it is a right assumption. And I think this is significant because it tells us of the seriousness of what's going on here. It tells us what's at stake. It's not harmless 
to be pulled off the path and just sit for a while with the wicked. It's not of no consequence if we leave the direction that God has given to us and instead choose to sit and take up residence with those who have no regard for God, have no desire to fulfill his will, have no inkling as to who he is. This is not a light thing. We've got to hear this as a warning for us and for the people around us. It is not to be trifled with. I, I don't want you to get the idea that this is just theoretical. Like, oh yeah, it, you know, it would be better if we walked with the Lord. It would be less good if we did this. But really, it's kind of, eh, one or the other. It doesn't really matter. That's not true. There is, there is horrible seriousness to this. Psalm 1 tells us, the way of the wicked will perish. And David affirms it again by saying that the wicked will be swept away and destroyed. And so he calls to God and says, I've, I've walked in obedience. I've been faithful to you. I have trusted you without wavering. I've walked with integrity. Do not let me be swept away. Preserve me and uphold me. Second thing to notice here is that even though David walks with integrity, he walks according to the law of God, he loves the law of God, he still has a need for repentance and grace. You see that here? Verse 11. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me, and be gracious to me. Now this is a good reminder for me that we never outgrow the foundational fundamental truths of the faith. So each one of us in this room, if we belong to Jesus, we're saved by the grace of God through repenting of our sin, turning away from sin, and calling upon Jesus for salvation. It's repentance and faith. But we never really move on from that. You don't graduate from repentance and faith once you become a believer. It is the ongoing characteristic in the life of the Christian to keep short accounts with God, to bring our sins and our needs before him and say, God, cleanse me from this. Help me with this. Help me to stay away from this and to follow you instead. And then to receive the grace of God as an ongoing endowment to give us the strength to live this way. Now, it's not as if you're getting converted over and over and over again, but it is a recognition when we confess our sin to God it is a recognition of God's holiness, of our sinfulness, and of the need that we have to have those sins forgiven. Repentance and faith, or in this case, David uses the word redeemed and grace. These are ongoing needs. So even though David walks in integrity, even though he is citing that way of living as a reason for God to enact his covenant faithfulness, he does not move on from the need for repentance and trusting in God. And we've built this into the service here as we come to the table every Sunday, which we'll do here in just a couple minutes, to give opportunity for us to keep short accounts with God, bring it to him, repent of your sin, and trust him for grace. What a wonderful way that God has given us to have relationship with him. I've never ceased to be amazed about this. Well, all of these things now that we've talked about, walking in integrity, 
trusting the Lord without wavering, staying away from the way of the wicked, and instead worshiping God with his people. All of those things are characteristics of the king's man, of the one who walks in adherence to the king. Now let's close by looking at verse 12 and seeing the stability that comes by this way of living. Verse 12, David said, My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly I will bless the Lord. Now one of the repeated themes in the Psalms is that of stability, firmness. And oftentimes that stability is connected with a person's trust and reliance on God. Let me just give you a few examples. Psalm 16, 8, I have set the Lord always before me. And because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Psalm 21, 7, For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Psalm 62, 6, He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. No one wants their life to be marked by instability. I have never met anyone who desires or thrives in uncertainty. Right? Everybody wants to know that things are secure, things are stable, you are cared for, you are established, you are solid. I don't know a single person who wants to live in a kind of shaky existence, not knowing what's coming, not knowing what's happening. And the Bible tells us that when we walk closely with God, when we observe his ways when we follow the direction that he's given to us that our life will be marked by or the outcome will be stability but that kind of leaves us hanging there doesn't it just for a moment who in this room show of hands perfectly walks according to the law of God who always does exactly what God requires of them Anybody? I didn't think so. So where does that leave us? None of us are able to do this, right? None of us are able to be the king's man in the sense that we should be. But there was one who did. There was a true king's man who actually deserved the just vindication of God who trusted God completely and never buckled. There was a man who rejected the temptation of wickedness and instead worshipped God with spirit and in truth. There was a man who became the dwelling place of God's glory and he tabernacled among us. There was a man who accomplished redemption and grace for his people so that we would not be swept away with the wicked. Who am I talking about? It's the man, Jesus Christ. He is the king's man. And what an example he set. He perfectly embodies the life that Psalm 26 is commending to us so that if we will but trust in him and in his finished work, he will give us as a gift, the strength to be able to pursue this kind of living. This is why I said at the beginning, don't be afraid of commands. Don't be afraid of work because we have the Spirit of God given by Jesus Christ himself that will enable you to walk in this way. So do you want to be a person of integrity? 
Do you want to be steadfast before the Lord? Do you want to walk in the path that God has given you and be able to say, no, I reject what is there and I follow after you, God? Then trust in Jesus. We can be a king's man if we follow the king's man. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this. And we can't help but read this and feel a sense of inadequacy. And that's good. It's good that we understand our own limitation and our own shortcomings. But I thank you for Jesus Christ. Oh, I thank you, Lord, for your Son who came and perfectly obeyed, perfectly fulfilled, perfectly lived and died and rose again so that we can have hope of this kind of living. I pray as we go out now from here, I pray that we would be strengthened and motivated to pursue this kind of living. You've called us to be holy because you are holy. So God, do it in our hearts and do it in our lives. Make us a people who are steadfast before you. And even now, God, as we have an opportunity to come to the table, would you remind us of your grace that is demonstrated in Christ so that whoever believes in you will have eternal life. We thank you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.